think I think we, I think you often get the what very quickly, and you know you ask someone a question, they're going to give you the the short two to three sentence answer that they know implicitly, right? They, if I ask you ten questions, I'm sure each of those questions you've probably been asked before to some degree. You've probably got some kind of canned, and I don't mean this in a disingenuous way, but sort of you know a stock answer that you give to like tell me about a really hard time you had in your career once, right? Like, I'm sure you've got a good example you could go to that you've probably used before. But then if you let that question, if you let that response finish, and then you ask the follow-up question, why is that? When was the first time you did that? What did you learn from that that you still do now? Right? Like, those are the kinds of questions that unlock real understanding, that unlock real perspective-shifting senses of who this person is so that you can connect with them more deeply. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. This episode of Baby Got Backstory is sponsored by Wild Story. Wait a second. I bet you're saying, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of my company, Wild Story, this show would not be possible. Here at Wild Story, we believe passionately in the power of stories and emotional connection to change perception, lives, business, and ultimately the world. So if there are people who would benefit from your work, who aren't engaging with you, if there's a change you seek to make in your culture, but it's not happening, and if you want to change minds so you can change the world, then get in touch with us, the team behind Wild Story. We can help. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how adopting other people's perspectives allowed Michael Ventura to discover that empathy is the secret to success and build a world-class strategy and design studio serving the world's biggest brands. And before we get into today's show, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and absorb these amazing stories. Stories create meaning. They're the way we see the world. They're the way I see the world. And we are constantly aligning ourselves with ideas, movements, and brands that allow us to see ourselves as the hero in our own story. And by experiencing other people's stories, we are able to connect with others, learn from their experience, and apply it to our own story. The things that have happened and the parts of our story we've yet to write. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts. And ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And lastly, this show is all about creating value for you, as well as opening up a dialogue. And I realize that often I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. I am at Mark Gutman, M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N, on all social channels. And you can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. If you have any great ideas for guests, please let me know. Any suggestions are always welcome. I want to hear who you want to hear. 
I've spoken on the show before about empathy, and I've always defined it as being able to say, hey, they're like me. And I believe that when we practice empathy, it allows us to change our mind. And when we change our mind, we change the world. But the only way we can really change long-held beliefs and ideas is to hear and relate to the stories of others in our office, town, those in other countries, and other parts of the world. This is the practice of empathy. And that is why I'm so excited for today's guest. Michael Ventura is the founder and CEO of the strategy and design firm Subrosa, based in New York City. He is also an expert on empathy and practicing empathy in business in order to produce real innovation. Later in the show, we'll hear Michael's definition of empathy and how most people get it wrong and how applying empathy is the secret weapon for any business looking to innovate. Michael and Subrosa have worked with some of the world's largest and most important brands, Johnson & Johnson, Pantone, Adobe, the TED Conference, Delta Airlines, and The Daily Show. What up, John Stewart? And Michael has served as a board member and advisor to a variety of organizations, including Behance, The Burning Man Project, Cooper Hewitt, and the UN's Tribal Link Foundation. He is also a visiting lecturer at institutions such as Princeton University, ever hear of that one, and the United States Military Academy at West Point. In addition to these pursuits, Michael leads a thriving indigenous medicine practice, if you can believe that, where he helps patients address illness and injury of all types on the road to better well-being. In Applied Empathy, his first book, which we'll talk about later in the show, was published by Simon & Schuster in May 2018. Michael is someone who I have admired from afar. I look at the work his agency does and his commitment to practicing empathy as a problem-solving tool, and I think to myself, I want to be like that. I want my company to be like that. He is using empathy, branding, and human connection to solve big, tricky problems, and I think that is super, super cool. And fortunately, through a connection, through a mutual friend, we were able to make this interview happen. I feel like I learned so much in these interviews, and this one is no exception. I hope you enjoy it. Michael, we're here to talk about your life and your story as an experiential brand builder, founder and CEO of the strategy and design firm Subrosa, and your evolution to using empathy as one might call your killer app. But I want to go back to the beginning. Did eight or nine-year-old Michael always want to be a brand builder when you were a kid? Uh, it's a funny question because when I was a kid, uh, we would have dinner at the family kitchen table every night. And uh, one night my folks had asked my sister and I what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I, I don't remember how old I was, but it was probably in that zone of like eight, nine, 10 years old. And my mom, my mom tells me this story. Uh, I don't even remember saying this, but she said that when they asked that question, I said, I want to be an idea man. And they, um, they were very supportive parents and they said, oh, that's very interesting. And Susan, what do you want to be, right? And kind of went right along. And then that night she said when she laid in bed with my dad, the two of them were talking and they were like, what the hell is our kid talking about that he wants to be an idea man? He's nine years old. What does that even mean? 
And, um, and, and truthfully, I have no idea what I meant by that either, other than I guess I just, it was probably a phrase I heard somewhere on TV or something. And it's stuck in my head as this, you know, oh, you can get paid for ideas. I think that would be fun. And, uh, and you can make a living making ideas. And so I guess in some ways, I guess I did always know that this was going to be something I was going to do. And so you mentioned your parents being super supportive and leaning into the idea man, which I love because I I still want to be an idea man. I like that. I like that title, <laughs> founder and idea man. But uh, so, what was your childhood like? What would what, what you know? What your parents do for a living? And and what was that upbringing like? Yeah, uh, grew up in suburban New Jersey, sort of a, a light blue collar family where we, um, my dad was uh, the second generation operator of a family business that was a, uh, started by my grandfather as a ice and coal and kerosene business and then kind of evolved into home heating and fuel oil and things like that. And my mom was started as a teacher and then moved into developmental psychology and was a guidance counselor for middle schools, working in social work and, you know, helping family, helping kids from troubled families kind of figure out how to stay stable in school and things like that. So when you look across both of those, you've got the, the, the hardworking entrepreneurial side and then you've got the hardworking social work side. And I guess it's no surprise in some ways that when you fast forward through all of that, here I am running a, my own business that is focused on bringing empathy into organizations. I mean, I think they kind of really, in some ways, got, got a good 50-50 balance of input into, into what I became. Yeah, for sure. And do you feel that or do you recognize or remember a time that, you know, perhaps you picked up on this idea of empathy? And we'll talk a bunch about that as we, we get through your story, because it's a really critical component. But as you were growing up and, you know, you have this father who's a hardworking entrepreneur and, and your mother who's a hardworking teacher, but on that more that psychological side, psychology side, did you have a sense of, of what empathy was or did they pass this on to you? Is this something that you've inherited or, or that it was more of a byproduct of the, the two coming together? You know, honestly, I don't know if it comes from any one place as much as it was always a thing that I was aware of because my interests were very varied as a kid. And so I was a good student. So I was in a lot of the like early honors programs types thing, type things where, you know, I was often in a, in a room with other students who weren't necessarily playing sports after school. Maybe they were more interested in other things. And so I was a sports kid too. So like I would leave the honors class and then go and have basketball practice or baseball practice. And then I'd end up at piano lessons and then I'd end up at this or that. And so like I kind of had to always shift my gears a bit in order to connect with and understand the folks around me because I didn't have like one friend group that I, that I, you know, went to school with, played sports with after school, came home, you know, it was like, you know, I was changing between arts and music and sports and school and video games and, you know, all of these other things. And the, the friend groups changed pretty quickly throughout that. And so if I was going to enjoy them, I knew that in some ways I had to rely on, I didn't know the word at the time, but rely on the idea of empathy about perspective taking and understanding where these people come from and, you know, kind of picking up on the cues of, of each social group so that we understood and connected with each other. So I think it was less a byproduct of my parents 
through teaching me, but more a byproduct of my parents encouraging me to pursue things I was interested in and finding myself in interesting circumstances where you know I had uh, different friend groups who called upon different things from me. Yeah. And that's so interesting to me because I feel like as you were describing your, your upbringing in at a high school, you have a very similar experience. But, you know, one of the things that I found was that it was often the exception rather than the rule where a, an adult or authority figure would celebrate that, uh, that ver- that those widespread interests, right? Like I'd always get the commentary like, like, well, what are you focused on or what are you really into? And it was like everything, right? I love everything and, and I like it and I was able to do it. But did you ever experience that? I mean, did you have that conflict? Because that was something when I was younger and even to this day is a little bit that uh, when I think about how I structure my business and people are always like, well, what clients do you like? And I'm like, I like anyone that's super interesting, <laughs> Right. And I know that's not the answer. I know that's not what you're supposed to say, but that's really the truth. And we try to specialize and stuff like that. But did you experience that when you were younger, that sort of conflict between being so varied and, and, and having to, to focus? Yeah, for sure. I think that the, the generation that preceded mine was reared to believe that focus is what gets you ahead, right? And that if you don't have focus, you're not going to ultimately land yourself a good job and get a good paycheck and all of those, you know, tropes that we know. And instead, for me, I think it was more that even though I wasn't doing that, it just intuitively felt like that was where I needed to be. And that was what I wanted to be doing. And so while people would say, wow, you're doing a lot of different stuff, does, there doesn't seem to be a lot of focus or you know, your interests are too varied and you, you're, eventually you're going to have to pick something and really stay with it. And I, I don't know, I think I picked generalists as, as, as a thing to stay with. And it has, has proven to be something that at least keeps my, uh, keeps my bills paid and my lights on. So I'm sticking with it so far. Yeah, and it's certainly far more interesting <laughs> than, than the right. the alternative for sure. So you're in high school and uh, you're playing a lot of sports. You're doing a lot of different things. You're you know in advanced classes and and things like that. Uh, at this point, do you have a sense of of what you want to do with your life? I mean, what's your next step? What's your plan for when you you leave college? I mean, I'm sorry, no, leave high school. Uh, didn't really have a plan. Um, I think if I if if there was any sense of a plan, it was just that I want to go somewhere in terms of college where I can continue to do a variety of things. And so um, I was recruited to play basketball in college. And so the schools I applied to were a mix of schools where I could play, which were D3 schools primarily. And then also a bunch of larger schools where I wouldn't play basketball, but wanted to, you know, kind of see what life would be like at a, at a larger school too. So I actually, I applied to I think something like 10 or 11 different colleges when I went through the application process because I wanted to have my options open. And the school I ended up choosing was interestingly a special specialty school. It's a, it's called Babson and it's in Massachusetts and it is only a business degree that you can graduate with. You can't have another major. And so while that for many undergrads would seem prematurely focused, perhaps, um, I looked at it as, well, a business degree is going to be super flexible. And with that, I can do a lot of different things. And inherently, no matter where I end up, I'm going to probably have something to do with the business world because won't we all, um, unless we become academics or something else. And so that just kind of seemed like a, a good general baseline skill set. While superficially it might have seemed specific, I actually saw it as as a good general skill. Yeah. What position did you play uh, on the basketball team? Hmm. 
Well, depending on at what stage of my puberty you're talking about, I grew very fast. So like in in, in the early days, I was always the tallest kid. So I was a center. But by the time I was in high school playing, I was a, a small forward. And, and did you have any aspirations beyond uh, playing at, at Babson to to take it any further? <laughs> no, no, no. I knew I knew the limits of that for sure, and um, and frankly, even didn't didn't play uh, all four years at Babson. I played for a little while and then realized that it was starting to feel more like a job and less like a, a fun pursuit. And I had a very rigorous high school basketball career where I was, you know, it, it was a job for sure in high school between, you know, multiple seasons, the main season, but also in fall basketball and then, um, you know, playing again in the summer and sort of preseason and stuff like that. So I kind of didn't want to have four more years of a job. And so stepped out of competitive play and just ended up playing intramural and had a lot more fun. Yeah, so you're hanging out, Babson, having fun, pl- dunking on all the people that didn't go and play uh, <laughs> on the team. And uh, you know, wh- what are you doing in college? Like, what's what's interesting you at this point? And you know, are you even having a glimmer? I mean, do you even know about like branding and um, uh, and strategy and things like that? Or you know, what are you seeing at college? Sort of. I mean, I think what we were seeing is, I mean, we were taking a very wide uh, cross-section of courses because the way the, the school is designed is you basically, your first two years from a business standpoint, you take everything from accounting to uh, corporate finance to strategy to marketing and you kind of get a, a wide cross-section of the of the business world. Um, that said, it's 50% of your course loads. So the other 50% is liberal arts and you can kind of take anything. And I, I ended up taking a lot of creative, creative writing and rhetoric courses and art history and things like that. Cause that was just sort of where my interests were. Um, I lived off campus, which was also something that was probably a little less characteristic. There was a, there was a, certainly a group of students that did, but it wasn't the norm, but I wanted to live in a city because I grew up 15 minutes from New York city. Cities were my, my, my way of understanding a place and living in suburban Massachusetts just felt a little too pastoral for an 18 year old kid who was, you know, off the leash and ready to, ready to run. And so, um, so living in the city, what I ended up doing pretty quickly was actually starting a business with a friend of mine where we were, uh, doing, uh, events at different nightclubs and bars and restaurants, which probably you're not supposed to do when you're 19, but somehow we got away with it. And, um, and that really kind of was the first taste of kind of, owning and operating something and together he and I, you know, basically through, through events and parties for, for three and a half years. Yeah. Like, and like, so why did you do that? How'd that come about? Like what, what well, I think it was I, genetically, I think I'm pretty always predisposed to bringing people together. And it was always a fun thing for me to think about where is there an interesting place? Where is there an interesting thing that's happening? How do we, how do we bring people, bring people together under that context and, uh, and do something fun? And whether it was under the banner of a DJ or a new club that was opening or whatever it was, we just kind of found that to be a fun, fun way to explore building a business. Were you guys making pretty good money at the time? For college kids, yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I mean, we would, uh, we'd probably do one or two parties a week. And so, you know, that that gave us a decent amount of walking around money. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you're doing that. And are you at that point saying, hey, look, I can actually do something with this? Or is it more just for fun? And sounds to me like you've always had your eyes set on New York City that you were going to return. Is that is that a pretty accurate uh, assessment? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, this is home for sure. It's, you know, it's as for as young as I can remember the, the 
skyline and walking around the city and sort of the the smells and the sights and the sounds and everything has just this has been imprinted on me as home, so to speak. So yeah, I think I always kind of knew I'd be coming back here. And uh, you know, the parties were really just a way for us to um, monetize what we were already going to be doing anyway, and figured we could <laughs> scrap together some cash while doing it. Yeah, totally. And then so you're at college, you're, you're throwing some parties, you're making a few bucks. And um, how, you know, how do you make your next move? What do you decide to do once you once you leave uh, Batson? Mm-hmm. Well, the bubble had just burst. So it was the end of the dot-com boom and all of those jobs that our friends got a few years prior and they were getting, you know, massive paychecks and uh, relative to, you know, their, their, their age and experience and, and stock options and all of these things, everything was gone. And we were graduating in probably one of the toughest employment periods in recent history. And so, uh, Everyone was looking for work, and everyone was trying to find where's the you know where's the the spot that I can find that's going to actually you know let me let me start my career, and I ended up at a agency that was hiring for basically just like a a junior utility player, someone who can answer phones and uh, you know check the mail, but also like project manage a small project if need be, or sit in a design brainstorm and come up with ideas, you know, basically just like a utility player. And that sounded great to me. And so I took, I took the gig and uh, worked there for about a year and then got laid off and found myself unemployed at 23, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, a buddy of mine was at Lehman Brothers at the time as a software engineer. And he was sort of withering away a little bit and the writing was a little on the wall at, at, on Wall Street generally and he got a sense that you know he didn't know how long his gig was going to last and so the two of us basically said let's take your software engineer expertise and and if we use expertise very uh, lightly in this context we're both like 24 year old kids but and I'll uh, and I'll take my experience working in this agency and let's see if we can start something and what we started was basically in the early days like a thing that made flash websites because that was what everybody needed back in 2003 2004 and what we realized though in making just you know websites and digital experiences for for companies Companies was that what they actually needed was someone to help them understand how to behave in a digital landscape because most of these organizations hadn't really gone headfirst into digital and social before because there really wasn't a need for it. And so now they were having conversations that were somewhat existential. They were talking about, well, if we get on Twitter or even this predates Twitter, you know, get on MySpace, right? Get on Friendster um, or set up our own blog and someone comments, who's going to respond? Is it going to be us responding as the voice of the brand? Is it going to be Mary from Pepsi? Who's going to respond? Like, what is the voice that, like, is it us as an individual? Is it us as a brand? And how do we operate? Do we respond to comments? Do we not? Like, there were all of these questions. And we being people who grew up with these technologies and were the target audience they were trying to reach, were pretty fearless about just telling them what we thought. And I think we quickly became a little bit of a digital consigliere to some of these organizations because we were just unafraid to give them our opinion unvarnished and say like, look, this is the right way to do this. This is the wrong way to do this. You're going to be eviscerated if you do it this way. And we gained trust pretty quickly. And then the business kind of expanded and evolved a little bit more from there. And is that what eventually became Sub Rosa? 
Essentially, yes. Um, so that myself and, and the partner uh, then grew it to a couple more people, brought in some additional partners, grew it till 2008 when the recession hit. And in that recession at the time, that was still called Seed. Our business was called Seed. And uh, the recession came and people wanted to kind of divide and go their respective ways and the pressures of running a business in a recession with cash flow and you know financial responsibilities and all of that were different for everybody and everybody sort of took different paths. And so I said, I wanted to stick with this and see it through. And so in the wake of the 08 recession and the partnership dissolving, I uh, rebranded the business as Sub Rosa and went out and met with a bunch of clients and said, look, we're not going out of business, but we're changing our business. And I want to understand from you what you need that you're not getting. And that doesn't just mean from us, but generally, like what is it that in the agency world you don't have. And a lot of our clients told us the same thing. They said, look, we've got smart consultants who come in and give us great recommendations and they leave with a deck, right? Here's the deck, here's the recommendation, here's the document that you've paid for. And then they leave. And then it's incumbent upon us to take that, sell it in, get support, get budget, write a brief, find an agency, brief the agency, kick off that work. And then hopefully they go execute against these strategic recommendations that someone else made six, seven months ago, uh, and that we all live to fight another day. But this is not the best way of doing our work. And if we could find someone who, like yourselves, is a good design executional partner, but also could sit upstream and make strategic recommendations, you'd solve your problem. And you'd probably solve, uh, you'd solve our problem as the brand, but you'd probably also solve your own problem, which is how do you stay relevant and stay valuable in a downturn? And so I made the investment in building out uh, our first you know, kernel of a strategy practice then. And that ultimately has really been the, the, the driving force of how the business has grown since then. We're now, you know, I would say 70% of our business is pure play strategic recommendations and design thinking work. And then 30% that remains is that we will also execute against those recommendations. Oh, that, that's... Yeah, it's really great insight on how to to stay valuable. And it sounds incredibly simple to walk up to your clients and say, hey, what do you really need? But most people don't ask that question. Like, what made you think to do that? And were the clients resistant at all? Were they more than excited to to share that information? They were so generous with their willingness to share their, their response because to your point, no one ever asked. And everyone just thought that like, hey, let's just keep doing what we're doing and sell it for more money and see how much they'll pay for it. And all of these clients really welcomed us into the conversation because I think going to your other question there, which was what, what, what made you do it, uh, we didn't have anything to lose. Right, it was a recession. Our business was was getting really tight on cash. My partnership was just dissolving, so you know, I I didn't have a safety net. I didn't have another option, and I knew if I was going to turn this business into what I wanted it to be, I was going to have to get some humility and go have uncomfortable conversations. But it proved to be the best thing ever. Usually, out of that uh, uncomfort comes the great things, right? The, exactly. The, you know, face the resistance uh, obstacle is the way for sure. A lot of times. So, tell me a little bit about seed. Like, where the name seed come from, and then uh, you know, contrast that with how you kind of involved it in the Subrosa. 
Mm-hmm. So seed was really just named because it was the start of something. And it was, how do we start a different type of conversation with consumers? How do we start to become an organization that cares about innovation? How do we start, you know, a lot of the work we were doing was this, this germ of an idea that organizations and clients were looking for something new to happen, right? They, they, we didn't make traditional advertising. We were not, we never build ourselves as an ad agency. We talked about ourselves as a design studio and we would just say, look, we're like, where, where, where do we start? What's the seed of this? Right. And so that's really kind of the, it wasn't like deeper than that. It was just, let's get in on the ground floor together and come up with something. Let's solve, let's solve a problem. And then as we turned into Sub Rosa, when I started to think about that brand and what we wanted to call the business then, I think the thing I realized throughout the, the seed journey was the one thing I continually saw time and again from our clients that needed a shot in the arm was the pace toward trust. Right when you build a new client partnership, there's always this getting to know you period, and that can sometimes take weeks, months, sometimes even years before you really get invited into the 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 inner sanctum of an organization. And the and warts and all, they're willing to tell you all the issues they're having. Right, so Subrosa was a great name for the business because in Latin, Subrosa quite literally means under the rose, but what it was colloquially used for was conversations had in private. When you had a conversation that was under the rose and be that, you know, sometimes they would, uh, they would nail a rose on a door and then anything that happened behind that closed door would mean that it was, it was in secret, it was in private, right? Or there would be um, a rose pinned on the ceiling or something like that and that would denote confidentiality. And so what we wanted to do was signal to our clients right from the get-go that, look, tell us the stuff you don't want to talk about because that's going to help us solve bigger problems faster for you. And and that's super ambitious. Was that the way it took off right away? Were people receptive to that? Or did it take a little bit of uh, uh, trying it on for a while before it really took off? It's always case by case. I mean, frankly, there were some clients who straight out of the gate when we sat and talked with them and said, hey, we're thinking about adding strategy services and really working on different types of problems with you. They were like, great, we, I've got a pilot. You want to give it a shot? Like, I, There were some clients that literally jumped right in the deep end with us because they needed a solution, right? And we were offering a, a way toward that. Um, there are others that it didn't work out for, for whatever reason, either either our offering and, and their needs didn't match or their comfort with that was premature for, uh, was, you know, wasn't ready to kind of, they weren't ready to open up in the same way, whatever it was. Um, and that's frankly still true today. I mean, we're not, I think the, any good culture inside an organization operates like a magnet and it is going to attract, but it's also going to repel and places that are, uh, you know, something for everybody usually don't have a strong point of view on themselves. And so for us, having this strong point of view and really organizing our business around a couple key things has helped us attract the types of clients that I think we do great work for and, uh, and probably keeps away certain clients that we would have a harder time doing good work for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and what I'm curious about as well, when I hear your story, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm going to make a little bit of a, a leap here, you know, it doesn't sound like you had a whole lot of experience 
you know, directly from an agency or something like that, but that you just got right into business and you kind of learned on the job and, and, and we've glossed over that, but like, tell me a little bit about that. Like how difficult was that? Like, where did you even like, for example, pick up design thinking, right? Which is a, a methodology for, for solving problems, approaching things with an empathetic lens, but certainly that just doesn't come natural to people. You gotta, you gotta get exposed to it and things like that. Like, how did you kind of just figure all this out? Was it purely by, hopping in and, and kind of taking your lumps and saying, yeah, we can do this and, and then figuring it out. But, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, how did, how did you do it? Yeah, I, I think it's, it was definitely some of that. It certainly wasn't learned in a, in a academic or in a, in another employer's, uh, uh, setting, right. It was, it was learned on the battlefield, which I think is actually the way you, you, you learn the best. At least it's the way I learned the best because theory is great, but you know, theory goes out the window the second you, you get out in the real world and you see what works and what doesn't actually. Right. And theory is good to fill your toolbox with, but you can't use every tool in the toolbox every day. What you learn in the, in, in the real world is which one is right for which task and how do you use them and how do you wield them? And, you know, there's a piece of advice a friend of ours dad gave us when we were first starting the business. He said, uh, if you don't get into trouble, you'll never learn how to get out of it. And I loved that expression. I thought it was, you know, uh, ballsy, but probably true and, and something we should consider for especially coming from someone who was another successful entrepreneur. And I think to this day, while we're smart and not cavalier with the, the risks we take, you still have to take risks and you still have to try new things. And if you don't make any bets on where the future is going or how to scale the business or when to pivot or you know making hard choices about your service offering or your talent or whatever it is, then you know, then if it's always easy, it's 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 also not always going to be set up for growth in the way that you might want it to, right? Sometimes growth requires, as we said earlier, some of those challenges, some of that discomfort, some of that willingness to take a risk and sit inside that decision and then push through it. And so I think that was a big part of what we did. Yeah. And so on that topic, I mean, what aren't we seeing? What's hard about running an agency and staying relevant for all these years? Because how long has Sub Rosa been around? 10 years this year and then yeah. prior, seed for another seven before that. Right. Huge. Right. So most businesses don't make it that long. And certainly most uh, design businesses, ha- you know, don't stick stick around that ro- long. You know, w- what's hard about about doing this that, that we're just not that we're not aware of? Well, the first is that I think, um, particularly on the uh, executional side of the business, it, it everything that is novel eventually becomes commodity. And so what what was yesterday's thing that you were the only shop or one of a handful of shops in the business who could do really well, blink and now everyone can do it and now it's just a now it's just who can do it the at the right quality for the lowest price, right? So then you get into that commoditized business where you're just basically competing on price. And we realized that was not a way to grow the business. And so that's a hard thing to realize that you're going to get really good at something and then everyone else is going to be good at it too. And, uh, and then you've got to get good at the next thing. So there's a constant flywheel of, of learning and growing uh, as a practice. Um, another thing is really sticking to your guns on what it is that matters to your organization, right? If you are, there's a great book out right now, um, came out last year, uh, called Principles by um, 
Ray Dalio, who uh, is founder of Bridgewater, which is uh, one of the largest and most successful hedge funds in the world. And Ray has a very polarizing culture. We've had an opportunity to work with them over the years, and we know this firsthand. But that polarizing culture is what makes them really good because he has stuck to his guns. And he has said, transparency is how we will run our business. Um, For us, we've really stuck to the idea of this this principle that we call applied empathy and said that everything we do is going to be grounded in work that utilizes an approach to problem solving that is founded in empathy and understanding, right? And willing to get out of your own shoes and to learn. And empathy is tough, right? It slows things down, makes things harder before it makes things easier. You've got to ask that extra question. You've got to take that extra 15 minutes to really get the good understanding that helps you unlock something that's also really the only way we can be us. Yeah. And so let's kind of hop back there because you have this agency. It's called Subrosa. You're doing some things. You know, you're asking some clients like, hey, how can we help you? But at what point did you really have this breakthrough, this, this idea that like, hey, we should be practicing empathy? So... I think for a lot of services businesses, there is is somewhere in your credentials document, a slide somewhere in probably the first five slides that has something in italics or something in bold that says like, this is the thing that makes us special and unique and different relative to all of the other companies you're going to meet with and talk to. And everyone's got that special sauce. And we started to ask ourselves early on in the business, what's ours? And how do we make sure it's real? And we didn't really have a clear answer on it. I mean, you know, you could say creativity or execution or, you know, I mean, all of these different kind of very generic terms that are going to be part and parcel of what you do, but not why you do it or not how you do it. And so we said, look, let's, let's build a project team around this and let's go back over our work from the past few years and let's see what work we loved and let's understand why we loved it so much and why it was so effective. And let's also look at the work that was ineffective and what made it, what could have made it better. And as we did that, the the theme that kept emerging for us was this idea of empathy. When we were taking perspective to gain richer insight on an audience, on a business, on a market, whatever it was, we knew it to a degree that was much more rich, much more well-rounded, much more able to be deployed into our ideas in a way that made them effective and adoptable and all of that sort of stuff. Now, it's worth mentioning for 10 seconds because I think this is always important when we bring up empathy. Empathy is not about being nice. It's not about being sympathetic. It's not about being compassionate. Those are side effects of empathy. Empathy unto itself is really the the act of perspective taking. And there are different types of empathy, right? There's affective empathy. Affective empathy is like golden rule empathy. So let's say I perceive that you're sad. Well, I've been sad before. And when I'm sad, I want people to console me. So I then console you. The folly in that type of action is that that puts me in and my and my needs into the recommendation, right? So because I want to be consoled, I console you. What if when you're upset, you want to be left alone, hmm. right? So effective empathy is often the way, it, it's, it's usually the shorthand version of empathy that we all go to because it's the way most people act with empathy, but it doesn't mean it's right in a business context. It just, mean that's the, it just means that that's the behavior. 
The second is somatic empathy. This is very uncommon in business, but this is like when you, when you have sympathy pains when your spouse is pregnant or something like that, where you physically feel what someone else is going on. A lot of nurses suffer from somatic empathy uh, in, the, in the workplace because they just take on the emotion and the pain and the stress and the turmoil of the patients that they're helping. So um, it's actually something that uh, like a lot of what they'll term empathy fatigue comes from the, the, the somatic empathy that occurs. The third, and this is actually where applied empathy is built, is cognitive empathy. And this is really just the muscle in the mind of training yourself to step out of your own bias, step out of your own perspective, and to look at the world truly from someone else's point of view. And the only way you can do that is through inquiry, through conversation, through research, through really studying them, as opposed to sitting from your chair and saying, oh, I can imagine what it must be like to be fill in the blank. And then here are all the answers, right? Because now you're just projecting. You're not, you're not actually doing the work. You're guessing. What you've got to do is get out there and do it. And that's hard. It takes time. But that's what this business has been built upon. And that's what ultimately has allowed us to grow and evolve. Oh, and that's, that's so great. And at what point, though, did you realize, you know, so, so you have this team, and I think that that was really interesting because you mentioned that you built a project team. And you know, a lot of people do this exercise of, hey, what's the business I like? What's good for us? But they kind of do it anecdotally. They kind of just do it in a small way. But it sounds like you really committed to this idea. And then once you found empathy, you didn't just say, hey, oh, cool. Now we've got like this buzzword to hang on our really cool capabilities slide, right? With the italics and say, empathy is our thing. You went really deep into it. Uh, you you studied it. You evolved it. You came up with this idea that you've uh, branded applied empathy. But then you took it even further and started to develop the discipline where you built out different empathy archetypes, I believe, Um mm-hmm. You know, t- tell me about about that. Like, how did that evolve? Because, you know, it's one thing to say, ah, that's our buzzword. That's our differentiator. It's another thing to take it where you've taken it. Yeah, we, you know, we said if we're going to hang our hat on this, it can't just be something italicized. We've got to actually know our material. And so one of the ways that we did that was uh, we said, before we go run and sell this to clients, let's actually go and build a curriculum and see if we can teach it because we're going to learn so much more in an academic environment trying to teach this than we will if we're just sitting in a, a client room. And the stakes are going to be so much higher because if we screw this up for a client, you know, we, may lo- we may lose a piece of business forever. But if we screw up the minds of a couple undergrads, I mean, it's not the end of the world. No, I'm just kidding. And so, um, so we said, no, let's, let's, go, let's go to undergrad and let's actually talk about the fact that we're co-creating this, that like we're teaching this class because we want to learn about it too. And so we ended up teaching three semesters at Princeton using this and, uh, and it became the number one ranked class, uh, student ranked class on campus. Students loved taking it because they felt like they were being invited into a process with us, that we were all learning something along the way and that they were getting better at being empathic in whatever problem solving they were undertaking. Uh, and we were getting more refined in how we packaged and, and created a tool, toolkit for how to use empathy. And then after that, we went um, and actually had the privilege of teaching the same work at West Point at the military academy. And, uh, and we got to work with generals and we got to work with cadets and we got to talk with them about how empathy plays a role in leadership and how it plays a role in a very command and control top-down environment versus a very loose liberal arts environment. And we learned a ton in both of those settings. And then after that, we said, okay, now I think we've got a foundation that we can bring this to clients. And that made a huge difference. It took three years or you know two and a half probably by the time it was all said and done. 
but it made a huge difference in our depth of knowledge around the topic. It's it's so fascinating, and you know, let's talk a little bit about West Point. That's so I'm so intrigued by that. I mean, you know, my my perception of West Point is that they're not progressive in that way, that they're not going to bring in, you know, cool, you know, young branding dudes and ladies to come in and, and, uh, help them with this project. Uh, were you surprised that they called you? Absolutely surprised when the phone rang, I had, I had no idea what the conversation was going to be about. And as we started to talk and the gentleman on the other side said, look, we've, we, we care a lot about this idea because, this is a leadership academy and we need to make sure that we're growing the right types of leaders. So will you come up here and have a chat with us? And so I did. And I had all of those same preconceptions that you just described. And I got there and I was proven wrong time and time again in that first day in every interaction I had. And at one point I was sitting with the superintendent of the school. He's a three-star general, career military guy. And I told him, about what we do. And I said, why am I here? Like, why do you think this is relevant? And he said, I'll give you a couple of reasons. He said, the first is that we're a military governed by civilians. We don't get to choose where we go. We don't get to choose what we do. Congress decides that. Our commander in chief decides that. And if we can't take perspective, if we can't understand what the civilian population is asking us to do and why, well, then we're just like blindly following orders and putting our lives on the line. And we can't do that as leaders in the military. We have to understand the why. We have to understand the rationale. And sometimes we might have to push back. Sometimes we might have to make a, a decision that's really hard that might even put our reputation on the line, but it might be the right decision that saves people's lives. And he said, so we must perspective take in order to do that. And that blew my mind. I never thought of it that way. And then the second thing he said was, most people won't stay in the military forever. Most people will go and do a tour. Maybe they'll do a second tour, but eventually they will leave the military and go into the private sector. And what I have learned in my years of being a leader in this, you know, this person had been in a leadership position for over 20 years. He said, the best leaders always have empathy. The best leaders always make an effort to understand who they're working for, what they're trying to solve and why. And think about this. You're a 21 year old kid. You're, you're just graduated from West Point. You're going to be deployed within six months to somewhere in some far-flung corner of the world that you've probably never been and are going to need to understand pretty quickly. You're going to have at least 40 lives in your command at 21 years old that you have to protect and think about and lead. And you know some of them are going to come from very different walks of life than your own. And some of them have had very different life experience that has brought them to this very point. And if you can't understand that and take perspective on that and realize that that's going to have to be somehow an influence to the way you operate and lead, you know, the leadership is already lost. Mm. So, you know, that has my mind spinning a little bit. If, if the military in, in West Point can be that progressive and, and the leadership there can understand how important empathy is, why do you think it's so hard for business as a rule to grasp onto this concept? I mean, more and more people are doing it and you have a whole, you know, fantastic business based on this. So obviously not everyone is resistant to it. Uh, but in my experience, I mean, it, it's not something that's always an easy conversation or an easy sell. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think first and foremost, it's because it's misdefined, right? Most people do think empathy equals being nice, right? And so when you go in and you talk about empathy in business, people are like, oh God, like more HR training, you know, and, and they're not thinking about it like, oh, this might actually help us solve problems differently or understand our customers better or be able to retain our top talent for longer. And so that's one area. The second is it's hard to measure. People feel like, oh, like how are we going to know this is working? Well, there are ways. There are ways like some of the ones I just said. What's your retention like? What's your recruitment of top talent like? What's your client retention like? What's your what's your user acceptance testing look like once you start using this as a as an input to design, right? All of that and more start to become ways of truly measuring it. But most people don't know that. And most people don't take the time to think about it. And then the third reason, and this is probably the most common of all, is that people don't want to do hard work. People don't want, like if you find out, if you go talk to 50 users and they all come back to you and tell you that the website that you designed or the product or the app that you've designed is ineffective and that the the thing they all want is going to cost you a couple million bucks and, and a year's worth of developers to, to retool it, man, that sucks. You don't want to do that. You don't want to go through all that hard work, right? It's easier to just stay the course. And that's unfortunate, but that's true. And that's what a lot of organizations suffer from. And the same is true, not just on the product side or on the marketing side. It's true on recruiting too. You know, there are a lot of recruiters who fish in the same ponds every day. And that's why you don't see the level of diversity in both gender and ethnicity uh, that organizations need because it's hard. Like, you know, if you know you get the right candidates out of these 10 schools and they come with the right skills, well then, you know, you're going to just keep pumping job descriptions into those schools to get those candidates. And yeah, it's going to tick the box of like keeping headcount where it needs to be and having the skills you need, but it's not going to change the way the, the tapestry of the organization looks and feels. And so those are the kinds of things that I, I come to find with empathy that really are the, 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 the speed bumps for people. It's, it's putting in the hard work. It's investing in change. It's willingness to measure. It's willingness to redefine it for you and the organization and how it plays a role in, in, in your processes and in your product development and in your leadership and all of those sorts of things. But the ones that do, and we, you know, I've got a list, uh, you know, as long as my wall behind me right now, full of clients who we're working with who are, uh, who are doing it and who are getting value out of it. So it does work. It just takes work. Yeah, and it takes a lot of work. And so people listening can even understand a little bit better about what we're talking about. Like what's like one of your favorite examples of how you've brought empathy in an organization and how it manifests itself into something that, you know, we can all understand or an experience that we can all understand. Sure. So this is, this is a recent one that um, just recently became public, so we can talk about it. It's for uh, New York Life Investments. So not the insurance side of the business, but the investing side of their business. And they met with us and said, look, you know, our returns are good. They're not, you know, light years better than, you know, anyone else in the top five, right? Like we all kind of compete around the same level from a return standpoint. We need to figure out a way to stand for something bigger than just the returns. Help us think about that. And so we went out into the investor community. We went out into the advisor community. We talked with everyone, just kind of exploratory surgery. They have a very enlightened CMO who said, look, I don't know what to ask you for other than help us figure this out. 
and to go have these kinds of conversations that we're not doing because we're not, you know, we're not equipped to do ethnographic research and make recommendations on the, on the brand and the marketing and the communication side. I need, I need help with that. And so we went out and did it. And the thing we kept hearing was the, the inequality in the nature of conversations that people have with their financial advisors. Um, and that inequality often a lot of times comes down to gender was the first big area that, that, that was a topic for us. And so we learned some really interesting stats, like 80% of women who find themselves recently widowed or divorced change their financial advisor relationship within 18 months of that occurring. 80%. And that's a huge number. It's a huge amount of churn inside uh, assets under management or a client base for, for an investment bank. If you think that 80% of women are going to change their relationship within 18 months of, of uh, a change in their relationship with their spouse. And the reason for that is because those women were never treated as equals, because those women were never truly made to feel like they had a seat at the table. Um, whether it was through eye contact, whether it was through who got the email, whether it was through whose phone rang when there was an update to send through. Most bankers, and this is not a New York life thing, this is an industry thing. Most bankers weren't doing a good job of that. And so we came back and said, hey, you know, we've done some research. This is a big gap. This is something we could do differently. And they said, we need to do this differently. And this was about 18 months ago when this conversation started. So like the Me Too movement was really just ticking off. This wasn't like a topic that was as, uh, as prevalent as it is today. And New York Life's investment CEO is a woman. Nishin is uh, an, a, a really wonderful leader. And she said, look, I'm a woman. I've seen this happen myself. She goes, winners in their families. And they still don't get the phone call from the banker right? We need to do something to change this. And so we built training programs and we brought in advisors and customers and we sat them down and we talked about things and we said, how could we do this differently? What types of conversations do we need to have? What do we need to unlearn? What do we need to create in the way of marketing and communications, but also in training, also in messaging, also in recruitment, right? Also in um, a code of ethics and a way we operate and checks and balances and how we're reviewed by our colleagues and by our employer and by our direct reports and how those reviews actually impact our compensation and our growth inside the company. All of these things, the whole ecosystem. And we rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up and rolled it out a few months ago for New York Life. And it is proving to be the highest engaging program that they've developed, really kind of reaching corners of the organization that have never been touched before. And it's already creating new financial relationships with their, uh, with their partners and with their, with their end, uh, end game investors, you know, the, the, the retail investors like you and me. People are already feeling it. They're already commenting on the difference in the relationship and they're noticing a change. So it's been a huge piece of work that we're super proud of because it's really said there was a better way to do something. It's going to take some bravery. It's going to take some time. But if you do it, you can win where, and not only just win for yourself, but win for the industry. Set an example, set a high watermark that other people have to live up to now. And that's what we're seeing happen. It's an incredible case study and, and story. And 
when you're out there doing that ethnographic research and interviewing, and that's one of the things I love to do. I just love talking with different people and meeting different people and hearing what they have to say. And those insights are always just kind of hit you, hit you in the face, even though all you have to really do is ask. What's your, what's your favorite question to ask when you're out in the field talking to those types of people? Why? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think we, I think you often get the what very quickly. And, um, you know, you ask someone a question, they're going to give you the, 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 the short two to three sentence answer that they know implicitly, right? They, if I ask you 10 questions, I'm sure each of those questions you've probably been asked before to some degree, you've probably got some kind of canned, and I don't mean this in a disingenuous way, but sort of, you know, a stock answer that you give to like, tell me about a really hard time you had in your career once, right? Like, I'm sure you've got a good example you could go to that you've probably used before. But then if you let that f- question, if you let that response finish, and then you ask the follow-up question, why is that? When was the first time you did that? What did you learn from that that you still do now? Right? Like those are the kinds of questions that unlock real understanding, that unlock real perspective shifting senses of who this person is so that you can connect with them more deeply and ultimately design solutions or be a better leader or whatever it is that you're there to do better. Yeah, good questions. I like it. I love it. And you might have answered already, uh, but I want to clarify one of the questions I had for you of all the work that you've done in this space. You know, what has given you the most fulfillment or what are you most proud of? Is it that uh, New York life uh, example or is there something else? I mean, all of the client work we've done has been to one degree or another gratifying. And the New York Life one or the work we did with GE uh, around designing the mammography experience, you know, I mean, there were, there were some pieces of work that just like come to mind for me that are always significant. But I think the one that is the most significant is the work we've done on ourselves as an organization. It's the work I'm the most proud of because it's frankly the hardest to do because it wasn't for someone else. And, you know, probably better than most that as a services business, no one's paying you to work on your own business and you are being compensated and you are being encouraged to put all of your resources on solving client problems and and growing client relationships. And so it's doubly hard to say, you know what? Yes, we're going to do all of that, but we're also going to point that skill set inwardly and we're going to find the time to work on ourselves and to improve our own processes or our own way of communicating or how we recruit and retain talent or this thing that really is, it should be done better and we're not good at it yet. We're going to learn how to get good at it. Like those types of things, we've made ourselves our own best client time and time again, and it has always proven to be the, the right investment. That's a little bit of a curveball. I didn't expect that answer. So that's a good one. <laughs> I like it. That's really cool. And it is hard uh, to work on yourselves as a, as a service provider. There's no doubt uh, you always eat last. So uh, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of conviction and courage and investment to do that for sure. So what does, you know, what's next for you and Subrosa? I mean, there's so much I want to talk about, but you know, we have limited time. I mean, you've got a, I don't even know how to accurately describe it. Is a, is it a, alternative medicine or mid-eastern medicine practice like how, how do you eastern medicine practice 
Yeah, I, I, I say alternative just because it's like an easy catch-all. That, I mean, that doesn't sit inside the four walls of Sub Rosa, but I've been doing that for about a decade now. I see in private practice, if it's busy, 15 people a week working in two forms, a Chinese form called Qigong, which is a, a traditional Chinese medicine practice centered around sort of energy cultivation, if you will, and then also an indigenous form of, of folk medicine from the Nahuatl Indians who are a Mesoamerican sort of Aztec, Toltec tradition. Um, in, in Mexico uh, and, and Central America that works with touch and uh, herbs and, and other uh, modalities in order to sort of release pain and trauma physically and emotionally. So you know, that, that's a whole deep dive onto itself. But that to me is something I will always do. What's interesting, I think, is that that world of private practice one-on-one work and the work we do at Sabrosa at the end of the day is the same job. It's different tools, undoubtedly. It's a different setting, undoubtedly, but the experience, if we're doing it right, is the same, which is how do we find that thing that is standing in the way of you getting where you want to go? And that thing might be fear, it might be an injury, it might be uh, an emotion, it might be a bad internal culture, it might be a leader who is not leading, it, you know, there's, the, the list goes on. But if we can, with empathy, perspective take and uncover what that is, then we can start to work on it. Then we can start to change it. And that is ultimately the job I like to do the most. So when you say what's next for me, really it is, I think, in many ways, continuing to not only refine that for me, but also helping my team here figure out what their tools in their toolbox are for themselves. Because everyone's going to do this work differently. The way I do it is in part the way I just described, but if I told everyone to do it my way, we would not be successful. What I need to do is help everyone who works here feel empowered to discover what their ability to do this stems from and what the tools they like to use are, and then get well-practiced in them. Mm. So where can people find out more about Michael Ventura and Subrosa? AppliedEmpathy.com is probably the best place to start. Uh, from there, you can find access to the book, um, to some of the tools and, and products we've created around this. Um, there's also updates on speaking engagements and workshops and classes that we do. So that's a good place to start. Great. And we'll make sure to link to that uh, thoroughly in all the show notes. Uh, Michael, one last question. The, the question we ask everyone that comes on the show here. If your 20-year-old self saw you today, what would he say? Keep going. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) And that's Michael Ventura of Sub Rosa. I hope you learn something about empathy and start to use it as a problem-solving tool in both your business and your personal life. And remember, empathy is not about being nice, just about seeing someone else's perspective. And in a way, isn't that what life is all about? Thanks to Michael and Subrosa for taking the time to share on today's episode. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 